Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> the author, uh, Tim Challies, once wrote, I am convinced that God saved me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I did not merit this salvation. There is nothing in me that turned God's eye my direction. There is no vestige of goodness that compelled Him to look my way. I was not seeking Him when He began seeking me. It was all of His grace without even the smallest bit of my merit. I added nothing to my salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Tim Challies is an author. I, I firmly believe if you get an opportunity to read a few of his books, it would do you well to do so. Uh, we've had an opportunity to listen to him at the G3 conference a number of times. Um, just, a, just a wonderful man of God and just really uh, it just makes theological truths very, very simple to, to follow. But uh, I want to welcome you back to part two of our series titled The Five Solas. Uh, we kicked this short series off last week uh, as we prepare for Easter, uh, as we're going to be wrapping up the Gospel of Mark on Easter itself, because obviously it's the resurrection. And if you remember, we began this conversation talking about the fact that 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, had some very deep theological concerns about the conflict that he saw between the Scriptures and what they taught and what the, what the church was teaching about the nature of salvation. And it was because of this he sought to basically have a conversation with other people so that he can talk about his concerns. And so what he did is he wrote them down on a document titled the 95 Thesis, and he nailed this document to the, to the church door at the University of Wittenberg where he was a professor of theology. And he did so in hopes of starting a civil debate. And as we talked about, he nailed this document to the door, not in an act of rebellion, and not certainly trying to start a reformation, 
He was just really trying to engage in a debate relating to the inconsistencies that he saw in the Scriptures and and what, what was being said by the church at the time on the subject of justification. They seemed to be at odds with one another. Little did he know, though, nailing this document to the door, that he would cause the Catholic Church to not only pronounce him to be a heretic, but it would create a monumental movement that has changed the entire world and all of the course of human history as a result. In fact, of the 2.2 billion people who call themselves Christians today, the vast majority of them fall into really two basic groups. You have Roman Catholics, right? Or you have basically a denomination that has roots in the Reformation. I don't know if you realize this or not. Every true Christian denomination that's not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox has a historical and theological connection that goes all the way back to this event that happened 500 years ago. Even though most churches don't talk about it, it is the truth, including all stripes of Baptists and Presbyterian and Methodists and Episcopalians and Lutherans and even non-denominational denominations. Um, They are theologically connected on some level to this Reformation that was started 500 years ago. Now, obviously, some churches are more closely theologically related uh, to this event because they embrace Reformed theology. But the truth is, most churches in America owe their existence to this one event that, that was inadvertently started by Martin Luther that ended up changing the entire world. This event actually kicked off a period of history that is known as the Reformation, which spanned the 16th and the 17th centuries. And it was during this time that many people like, like Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli or John Knox or even John Owen, uh, Brother Matt has a quote by John Owen on his, on his t-shirt, and many more people, so they, what they did was they stood against the traditions of the Catholic Church and they stood against the papacy in an effort not to be rebellious, but to reclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the foundational doctrines that are really essential for believers in the church. They stood against the Catholic church, even in the face of great persecution at the time, by the way, in order to bring to light the truth, the life-saving gospel of grace, the gospel that Martin Luther believed was clearly expressed in the book of Romans uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In fact, Um, These are two verses that are worth remembering all the rest of your life. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteous, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther, reading this scripture, saw clearly that that the righteous, the people who have been justified, live by faith and not something else. A person is justified by faith alone. But the Catholic Church at the time said that, that the righteous live by faith, but not alone. The righteous live by faith and faith and confession, Faith in penance, faith in communion, and buying indulgences, and paying to see the relics, and all other sorts of rituals that the church had adopted over over time. And Martin Luther saw that there was a conflict between what the Bible says and what the Catholic Church was teaching. And out of this conflict came the all-important question then of who is right? Who's the ultimate authority? Is Is it the Pope? Is it the traditions of the church that evolve and change with time? Or is it the Bible, the Word of God? 
Who has the final authority over doctrine and faith and what it means to be saved? Well, Martin Luther, along with all of the other reformers, came to the same understanding, and their understanding was that the Scriptures, the Bible alone, is the sole infallible authority over all matters of faith and all matters of practice. And the, the phrase they used was, in Latin was sola scriptura. That became the Reformation kind of like battle cry. Right? And it clearly points out to the idea that what we need to know about God and what we need to know about salvation is found in the Bible, the very Word of God. It was the Bible, not traditions, not opinions of men, not the counsels of men. It was the Bible that was reclaimed as the sole, accurate, infallible, inerrant source of truth. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. And out of this understanding, then, of the authority of the Bible letting the Bible speak for itself, right? from the Scriptures, four other slogans were reclaimed as the source of accurate, an accurate explanation of the Gospel. The nature of the Gospel was reclaimed with these statements. And it's, it goes like this very simply. We are saved by sola gratia, or grace alone. By the way, you will memorize these by the time we're done, I think. So, We're saved by sola gratia, or grace alone, through sola fide, or faith alone, in solus Christus, or Christ alone, and it's all for soli Deo Gloria, or the glory of God alone. That is the gospel in a nutshell. The Reformation was all about the return to the foundational heart of the gospel. We appeal to Scripture alone for our final authority about truth, and the Scripture tells us we are not saved by the things that we do. We're not saved by our own merits. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, and that is it. You see, the Reformation came from the Reformation came these life-changing and world-altering slogans. These were ideas that were that had recaptured the heart of the gospel, and in in the process of that, it changed the entire world. It changed everything. In fact, we are here right now because of the work that they did then. And last week we talked about that sola scriptura. We, talked, we made it clear that this slogan is actually just as important today as it was 500 years ago. It's every bit as relevant today as it was 500 years ago because there are people still in our culture, even people in the church that are trying to appeal to other authorities for their faith in life. People will try to appeal to personal religious experience over the Scriptures. People will try to appeal to their emotions and even philosophies of the world. And, and even now, the government. For many people, even the government is the final arbiter of truth in the world around us. Sola Scriptura is just as important for us in the church today as it ever has been. Now this week, we're going to spend some time talking about sola gratia, or grace alone. And I'm going to tell you this Reformation idea of grace alone is probably the easiest of all of them to explain and the easiest to, to understand and like wrap your head around. But I have to tell you, this idea of grace alone is probably the hardest of all the slogans to reconcile in our own minds and hearts. Because for some reason... There is just something inside of all of us that says there has to be more to this than that. 
There must be something more to me being saved than just being saved by God's grace alone. I mean, come on, there has to be something more, at least a little something more. I need to do something. I need to do some kind of good works. Right? I need to go to church. I need to do penance. I need to keep the rules. I need to go spend some time alone on a mountaintop somewhere and close my eyes and hopefully I can encounter God. I need to exercise my free will and choose God for my own volition. I need to do something. I need to participate in my salvation on some level, somewhere. I just can't simply accept that I'm just saved completely by God and His grace alone. I mean, it sounds really good. When, when we fall on our faces, we love that truth, right? right? But somewhere in us, we just feel like we have to contribute somewhere. That's why the Catholic Church over time had adopted the idea of grace and grace and. You're saved by grace. Oh, and your baptism into the church. And your participation in Mass. In fact, you have to participate in lots of Masses because because grace is is distributed through the church one little piece at a time as you go to Mass. And so then it's also grace and taking the Eucharist and communion and confession because you can't go to heaven without unconfessed sin. You're saved by grace and pilgrimages and fastings and indulgences to pay for sins that weren't paid for on the cross. That's where the Catholic Church ended up in the 16th century. And it didn't happen overnight. It was a little trickle here and there, a slow theological fade piece by piece as people forgot the truth. Salvation by grace alone is easy to understand, but it's really hard for people to accept. And by the way, it's the same way today. There are many groups trying to add something to God's grace. Like a church that we're familiar with that says, you're saved by, by, grace, by grace excuse me, and your baptism. There's a denomination that preaches that, that you're not saved, even though that you maybe repent and believe the gospel. Right? You're not saved unless you get baptized. That, that until you get baptized, you're still unregenerate. You're still not saved. They believe you have to be baptized to be justified by, by God. His grace by itself is not enough. There are others who have who we call friends, but they're in a very different faith tradition and not historically Christian, that they will agree that you are saved by grace, but then they but they but not grace alone. Right? In fact, their expression goes like this: you are saved by grace. And then they add the phrase, only after all you can do. You're saved by grace only after all that you can do. As if you can do everything within your power, you need to. You need to do everything within your power to be deserving of salvation. You need to perform all the rites. You need to perform all the the functions you need to to give. You need to do all the things we ask you to do and do all the good deeds and live as perfectly as you possibly can in order to be saved. And then God seeing your worthiness of how hard you're working comes along and sprinkles a little grace in there to fill in the gaps to overcome your shortcomings. This is one of, the, one of the dominant theological points of view in our community, by the way. Our tradition, other traditions say that you have to manifest certain sign gifts to be, to be saved, like speaking in tongues. I mean, I've heard people say that unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. No. While other organizations say you have to be baptized 
Not just baptized, but to be baptized only in Jesus' name, not the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, like Jesus said. Right? And you can't be saved unless you get baptized that way. Right? But here's the thing we need to realize. It's not just other religious groups around us that struggle with us. Even true born-again Christians believe in, or, or struggle with this at times. And I think we all can relate to this. I, mean, I, want, you, I want you to think about this. When, when we were younger, at some point in our lives, we heard the good news of God's grace. And when, when we understood it, we received it with great joy, right? I know that I did. We make a profession of faith. We begin to live this brand new life. And we're just so in love with Jesus, right? And then we begin to go to church. And then we start reading the Bible. And we, we, we pray, right? And then we go to Facebook, and we like all the different preachers we can find, and we want people to know just how much we love Jesus, and so we, we, we type amen and share everything, right? Come on, admit it, right? And, and, and we live our lives outwardly as we begin to change, and we start you know, giving up things in our lives, right? We start giving away and, and giving up things that we just don't want to do anymore, like, like cussing most of the time, right? Come on. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Right? We start giving up things like gossiping. We start giving up things like, like secular music, right? Or, or the, the worst kind of movies are like, yeah, that's probably across the edge, you know? People even give up really big vices like pornography. And, and, and some of us even manage to stop giving people that salute when we drive and they cut us off, right? We, there's a visible, manifested change in our life. We, we live a brand new life in Christ, and we're excited about this, right? And everything feels good, and we have this wonderful joy, Right, and then, bam! What do you do? We fall down, right? And we sin, and, and and we don't just like sin a little bit. We do it in a glorious, spectacular way. We fall face down in the dirt, bump our heads. You know what I mean? Just completely making a mess of everything around us. And it's not even a question: Was that a sin? I was like, we know, we knew exactly what we were doing, right? And suddenly, then. Because of that sin, we feel convicted. And we're like, I've sinned. God's going to reject me now. God's going to turn away from me. God doesn't love me anymore. And we think, I, 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 need, I need to do something to get right with God. I need to, I need to fix this. I need to, to do some good things so that God will accept me and, and love me again. And we kind of put ourselves in this little spiritual penalty box, thinking that we need to earn our way back into the grace of God again. I think we all have had moments like these. I know that I have more than my share. But here's the thing about the grace of God. God didn't save you because you did something to make Him accept you. Right? God saved you by His grace. Not because of what you did. Right? Understand that. God saved you not because of what you did. God saved you in spite of what you did. Right? God saved you by His grace. Now, now, please, I want you to hear me out on this, okay? I'm not saying you shouldn't feel deep remorse for your sin, because you should. If you love the Lord and you understand how ugly sin is, it should pain you, right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't be upset when you fall down and make a mess of things. You should be upset. You should feel sorrow, and that sorrow should push you to mourn for your sin. It should push you to repentance, to turn away from your sin and turn back to God, right? But you have to realize this. You don't repent to make God accept you. 
You repent because God already has accepted you. Right? He's already made you alive. Because the truth is, if you're not saved, the truth is you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. In fact, let's look at the text again. This is one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible on this one subject right here. And I've read this text over and over again. I talk about this text over and over again. But Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be getting in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this is the place that we just need to kind of hang out for a moment and just think about. Because in this opening line of this section, there is a truth that many people will struggle with. There is something in what Paul says here. For some reason, people want to skip or ignore or overlook or change the meaning of. Let's read it again. Paul says right here very clearly, You were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you walked. Dead. Notice that Paul is not simply saying that you just walked in sins and trespasses. He didn't just say that you lived in sin. He said you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you walked. You were dead, not, not sick, not mortally wounded. You were dead. You have to understand this. This is an important foundational truth that we have to come to terms with. Otherwise, the gospel will not make sense to us. You have to understand that you were not sick in your sins. You were dead in your sins. You were not alive even in the slightest bit. You were dead. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking about physical death here. We understand that. He's, he's not talking about physical life and death. He's talking about spiritual life and death. But Paul is telling the Ephesians and us right, that before we had Christ, before we had faith, we were spiritually dead in our sins. Now, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek that's per, uh, for dead is pronounced nekros, which is derived from a word nekis, and that word literally means a dead body. Right? So nekros means just that, dead. What lacks life. Figuratively, this expression means not able to respond to an impulse or perform a function. It's the inability to do anything. It is to be ineffective, powerless, unresponsive to the life-giving influence of God, inoperable to the things of God. Very clear. And so what Paul is saying is that if you are spiritually dead, you're not receptive at all to the things that are spiritual. That you're not able to hear the voice of God. You are unresponsive to the life-giving influence of God. Why? Because you were dead. This metaphor is very clear. Because dead people can't be motivated. Dead people aren't responsive to stimuli. Dead people don't hear voices. Dead people are just that. They're dead. Dead people don't grab a hold of a life preserver that's thrown to them. If there's something worth writing down in this whole message, that might be it right there. Dead people don't grab a hold of a life preserver that's thrown to them. Why? Because they can't. As the definition says here, a person who is dead is unable to respond to impulses or perform functions. Why? Because they're lifeless and inanimate. And Paul says... That was our spiritual condition. We were spiritually dead. Now let me ask you a question. If you're spiritually dead, how can you possibly 
save yourself spiritually. If you're unresponsive to the life-giving influence of God, how can you save yourself? The answer, obviously, is you can't. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Nothing. Well, then how can you be saved at all? I mean, death is a pretty permanent condition. It's a pretty big deal, right? How can you be saved if you're already spiritually dead? That would take a miracle, wouldn't it? Right? That's exactly what happens here. That's why grace is required. Salvation for those who are spiritually dead requires a gracious, supernatural act of God. It requires a miracle. It requires that God do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And so, and so the truth is this. You must be saved by something altogether outside of you because you are dead. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here because I can go on about this what I want to do is follow where Paul's leading here because there's a lot of good stuff here. And I know, I have a tendency to go along. And you'd be proud of me. I'm like, I deleted like five pages of notes out of this thing this morning. So Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul makes it clear that being spiritually dead towards God and His life-giving presence, this reality actually manifests itself in our physical world. Being spiritually dead has physical consequences. He said that we were spiritually dead in our sins and we walked in that. Or in other words, we participated in our own trespasses because we're sinners, broken sinners. That's the consequence of our spiritual death. But then there's more. Not only did we sin, we did so following the course of this world. Culture, governments, you know, philosophies, following the course of this world, which is following the prince of the power of the air. And he guesses who that might be. It's Satan, just in case you're wondering. So I'm to ask you a question. Is there any question in your mind that the world right now is following the influence of Satan? I mean, we're going to ban cat in the hat, but then allow every form of pornography to permeate the world around us in every form of medium without even blushing. We're going to cancel Mr. Potato Head, but then we're going to let the government facilitate gender transitions of preteen children against their parents' wishes. We shut down houses of worship all across the world, but then mandated that abortion clinics stay open because they're essential. Is there any question at all that the world is following Satan? Of course it is. Now, it might not know that it is. It might not desire to do so, but it is following him. Why? Because the vast majority of the world is simply, simply spiritually dead. Right? As Paul says, and we, before Christ, were just like them. We were dead as a result of that, and we walked in our sins, and we followed right along with the rest of the world, doing all the things that the world does. Being spiritually dead has physical consequences. It manifests itself in the material world around us. 
That's why we see the things that we see. As Christians, if you're not shocked by what's happening in the world around you, then you need to examine your heart. But the reason why it shocks you right, is because what you're seeing is the result of spiritual death. People are just behaving like spiritually dead people. That's why there's so much pain and destruction and depravity. The vast majority of the world is spiritually dead. And again, we were just like them, as Paul says. But how did it, how did it get that way? How does that happen? Well, Paul tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and once we once walked, fall in the course of the world, fall in the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying, uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul gets right to the truth here. And, th- and this is a truth that many people don't want to hear. This is a truth that people push back on. This is a truth that all of popular culture will push back on. This is the truth that people don't want to accept. They say, right? He says that we are children of wrath by our nature. It's our nature. It's just who we are or who we were. It was our nature to be spiritually dead like the rest of the world. We, by our nature, were objects of God's wrath. We were by nature, have the wrath of God resting upon us. And what does that mean? It means being children of wrath. It was was an intrinsic part of who we were before Christ. It It was in our DNA, so to speak. Or literally, it means we were born that way. One of the difficult truths that, that the world wrestles with all the time is always a question of, is man naturally good or naturally evil? And I want you to know, the vast majority of people will, will, will fall towards the side that says, naturally good. But the Bible's telling us that's not how it is. We were born this way. We were born sinners, spiritually dead. As, as King David tells us in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were born sinners. We were born, stillborn, spiritually speaking. The moment we opened our eyes and took our first breath physically, there was nothing in us spiritually responsive to God. There was nothing in us that could respond to God's life-giving influence on our own. There was nothing in us that would deny our sinful appetites and choose God. It was our nature, and we were born that way. Now, the funny thing is, is the, is, is the world will tell you that people are by nature good, but they will also then affirm this truth that we are born this way. In fact, if that's the excuse that many people use to justify their sin and justify their lifestyles and their actions, they say, what do they say? So it's a common phrase. Well, I was just born this way. You can't judge me. I was born this way. Well, in a very real sense, they're right. They were born that way. Because the truth is, we are all born sinners. That excuse, by the way, doesn't work for people who are born to be murderers. This is the doctrine of original sin, by the way. That we were born depraved and spiritually dead in our sin. And that includes every single one of us. That's how we began. And we're born that way, which leads to the fact that we must come to terms with that you cannot 
Fix it on your own. This is the truth that strips away all of your self-righteousness. This is the truth that destroys traditions of works righteousness. This is the truth that, that, that tears up your pride and your boasting. The truth is being spiritually dead and being born that way means there's absolutely nothing that you can do on your own to change it. You can't fix it, no matter how hard you try. You can't follow enough rules. You can't be nice enough. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't deny yourself enough. You can't feed enough people. You can't rescue enough kittens. You can't sponsor enough underprivileged children. You can't donate enough money to charity. You can't beg enough, cry enough, mourn enough, be loving enough. There's nothing you can do to fix your spiritual condition. Why? Because you're dead. You were born that way. And that means nothing you can do can change it. These are the facts that we must accept. In fact, I, uh, the prophet Isaiah actually gets really to the heart of the matter. He says, we've all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And I, and I, I, I would implore you to look up what that actually means in the Hebrew when it says polluted garment. It's not fit for, for present company to, to talk about like out loud. I'll just say that it's really, really ugly and disgusting and vile. Right? And that's what our best efforts are before God, is just pure ugliness. He says, we all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like, a, like the wind take us away. We were in our trespasses and sins, and we were born that way with no way to change it. Right? Which that means, then, we were completely, utterly hopeless. We are, by definition, completely helpless. And this right here is the important truth that we have to understand and embrace. Right? On our own, left to our own devices, we're helpless and hopeless. We have to come to terms with this truth because, because if we don't, what Paul will say next will not fully, will not fully make sense to us. We have to foundationally recognize our helplessness in order to make sense of what Paul says next in his, in, in his words. And so Paul makes it clear we have been spiritually dead. We live a life of sin following the world, following Satan. We're born that way, helpless to change ourselves, and we're hopelessly lost. And it's in that context that Paul says two of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible, but God. I don't want to belabor this point, but you have to see. He says, but God. And the reason why is because the solution to the greatest problem that you're ever going to face, right? Your complete lack of spiritual life and, and the impending wrath of God that rests upon you, the solution to that problem begins not with you and, and not with, you, with mankind and not with your religion and not with your tradition and not with your works righteousness. It begins with God, Paul says we have, a, we have a problem, an overwhelming problem. We are helpless and hopeless, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. 
the entire foundation of the gospel is in this one verse right here. This is the intersection of the bad news of the gospel and the good news of the gospel. I want you to notice that all the action verbs that take place here too. I want you to notice that the one who's doing all the action. Paul says, but God himself being rich in what? Mercy. God by his very nature is rich and abounding and overflowing in mercy. What is mercy? Right? It's not giving somebody something that they deserve. It's withholding from them the punishment or the penalty that they rightfully deserve. That is what mercy is. And this mercy from God is overflowing right, with this attribute of Him. Now, we know what we deserve. We know it. Intrinsically, we, do, we deserve hell, but God, being rich in mercy, doesn't give us what we deserve. Right? Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. This overwhelming, unimaginable love with which He loves us. Hear that glorious truth that God in His mercy and in love for us, even when we didn't love Him, even when we weren't looking for Him, even when we weren't wanting Him, even when we were rejecting Him, He loved us in spite of us. And guess what? We don't do anything at all to earn that love. There's nothing in us that says, God loved me. He loved us because He wanted to love us. And notice, don't miss this. It says, even when we were dead, even when we were a rotting corpse, He loved us. Even when we were born that way, children of wrath, even when we were walking our sins and trespasses and following the world and following Satan himself, God loved us and made us alive together with Christ while we were still dead. We were not alive, but God, because of His mercy and His love for us, makes us alive. He performed a miracle. He took what was dead and made it alive again. Understand the importance of that. There's a miracle that He performed doing for us the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. We were dead, unable to do anything. And God, by His miraculous, supernatural, awesome power, made us alive. Right? Understand that it's all God. Salvation is 100% all God, all the time. He's the one who has mercy. He's the one who loves the unlovable and the dead. He's the one who makes us alive. And, and He didn't make us alive because we went to church. He didn't make us alive because you know, we were following some rules. He didn't make us alive because He saw some speck in us of, of that we might be a good people at some point. He didn't make us alive because of prayer. He didn't make us alive because we decided that we wanted to follow God. He made us alive by His grace. In fact, Paul then the very next phrase says, by grace you have been saved. You're saved by the grace of God. And this little phrase that Paul inserts here is really kind of a parenthesis because he didn't, he didn't want anybody to miss this truth. And then Paul says, by God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then he raised this up 
with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He said, not only have we been made spiritually alive, but we received eternal life, and we already have an inheritance in heaven that already belongs to us right now. It's a very real thing that if you step, if you were in Christ and you step off into eternity right now, you are instantly united with Christ and have your inheritance. And then he says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, when Christ returns, the fullness of God's love and, and, and the riches of his grace will be on full display for all of the world to see. God makes us alive in Christ and he gives us eternal life so that his glorious generosity can be fully displayed when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. And in the middle of this phrase, Paul wanted to make sure that you didn't miss the little point, by grace you have been saved. And again, this is such an important point that he emphasizes it by saying it again a few verses later. In verse 8 he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. When you, when you think about this, like Paul just couldn't help himself twice in this little section, he says, you were saved by grace, not your own merit, not recognizing that you need God, not by obeying a set of rules and not by your compassion towards other people. You're saved by grace. Grace, by the way, is getting what you don't deserve. See, mercy is the opposite, right? It's, it's not getting what you do deserve, the bad things that you deserve, but grace is getting the good things you don't deserve. And Paul says that you were saved not because you deserve it. You're saved in spite of the fact that you don't. If that were not clear enough, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved, and it's not your own doing. You didn't do it. This is like the hardest thing for us to let go of. You didn't do it. Right? You didn't earn it. It's a gift from God, not the result of anything that you could do. Understand it's all grace and nothing to do with you because it's a free gift of God, a gift that He gives you in spite of the fact that you don't deserve the gift. Romans chapter 6 tells us what we deserve. Right? Verse 23 tells us that wages of sin, what you earned for your sin, what you rightfully ought to be paid for your sin is death. We were spiritually dead and we deserve to stay spiritually dead and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the undeserved gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know if you guys can get excited enough about this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, not the re result of what you can do, not the result of you somehow looking for God, not the result of all the attempts of you trying to be good. Nothing you can do. And the reason why it is that way is so that no one can take the glory. You see, all that God does, He does for His own glory. He does this so that you can't boast and glorify yourself. So that no one can claim, even the slightest bit, the glory that He deserves. It's nothing you can do. Not even the tiniest little bit. And I want you to understand, I personally thought of this idea of being saved in God's grace. It's kind of like being a person who's swimming in this vast ocean. This is what I used to believe. This is how I saw it. 
right? This person is in the darkness, treading water all by themselves, and they're doing so for just for days and years at a time, right? And this person's doing everything they can do to keep their head above water. They're working, they're struggling, they're fighting and fighting to stay alive, and they're tired, and they're exhausted, and they're gasping for air, and they begin to go under time and time again, but they keep fighting back, and, and they come up choking and spitting, and, and they're just struggling with all that they have, and, and they feel like it's never, ever going to end. And then they go under one last time, and at the right last moment, God throws a rope and a life preserver on it, and in that moment, they grab a hold of it, and God hauls them into the boat. That was my understanding of salvation for such a long time. Right? That's been my understanding of grace for so many years, that God throws us the life preserver, and then we have to then grab hold of it. Problem is, it's not accurate or biblical. It might sound nice and feel nice, but it's not how it is. You see, what's, what's more accurate is the fact that we are in this ocean, we're already dead. But not only are we dead, we long since stopped floating on the surface of the water. We have sunk all the way to the bottom of the vast abyss into the darkness. And we've laid there so long that our corpse has long since been decomposed all the way down to, the, to, the, to its skeletal remains. That's how we are, lying motionless, helpless in the vast, deep darkness completely devoid of any hope of grabbing onto anything that might save you because nothing in you would even want to do that. You're incapable of doing that. And it's in that condition then that God dove into the water as Christ dove into this dark world and He swam to the bottom of the abyss and He lovingly collects your remains and brings you back to the surface and then supernaturally creates in you new life and puts you back together and breathes new life into you, eternal life. That's what salvation is. That's what the grace of God is. What did you do to deserve that? Nothing. All you did was lay there on the bottom of the abyss, motionless, helpless, and dead. That's the picture of what it means to be saved by the grace of God. That's what grace really is. What we need to realize is that God is the one who initiates life. It is God who initiates the relationship with us. It is God who initiates salvation. And salvation is 100% the work of God. There's nothing at all within us, not even the tiniest speck that we can do to cooperate with Him. Because if we did, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be a gift. On some level, it would be deserved. Something that we earned. It would be something that we worked for. Something that we could boast about. But Paul makes it clear as day that by grace we have been saved. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works and no one may boast. We were spiritually dead in our sins. Like the story of Lazarus who was physically dead in the tomb before God made him alive. Remember that story? Lazarus come out and he came out. Why? Because he was made alive and then he could come out. You were unable to respond to God because you were dead. But God, for whatever reason, God by His grace decided to breathe new life into you so you could respond and follow Him. Now I think probably the most common objection to this teaching is, well, wait a minute, I have free will. So I choose God. I chose Him. God didn't make me, I chose Him. I chose to follow Him. And I understand that. I understand 
all the arguments to that and how you feel about that. But here's the truth. You couldn't have chosen to follow God if He hadn't first chosen you. You see, it's just as simple as that. If God didn't choose you, you'd have no ability to choose Him. Why? Because you were spiritually dead. But God chose you and made you alive when you were dead. And because God regenerated you and made you alive, you were able to hear and respond to His gospel. And the truth is, those who hear God's call respond to God's call. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. It's one that I lean on for, for hope, but it's really loaded with this kind of language. He says, and we know that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son so that they would be the firstborn of many brothers and those whom He predestined, He also called. Those who He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Now with that, I know men will ask, well, well how's my free will work with, with, with God if He's sovereign? He's the one who's doing all the choosing, it seems to me. Well, right? Because the Bible tells me I must choose this day who I am to follow. It, it commands me to do that. Right? The Bible commands me to follow Him. The, the Bible commands me to obey Him. So how does that work? How do I choose God if He's completely in control? Right? Well, I, I think this is where what we have to do is we have to submit our minds and hearts to the, to the truth of what the Word's saying and lay aside our personal feelings and vain philosophies of the world and embrace the, the, the teachings of the Scriptures. The Bible does command us to obey God. It does command us to do that. It commands us to believe in Him and to walk with Him and to worship Him and make Him the center of our lives. The Bible commands all people to do these things. Everyone is commanded to do this. right? And everyone has the choice. I want you to hear me on this. Everyone has the choice, the free choice to do so. God is not stopping anyone from following His commands. Everyone has a free choice to do so. But here is the unvarnished truth. If we are left alone in our unregenerate, spiritually dead condition, no one chooses God ever. They have the free choice to do so, but they will never do it. No one chooses God. No one on their own chooses to turn from their sin and trust in Him. Why? Because they're dead. God doesn't prevent them. Their nature prevents them. They're dead in their sins. Their lives, they're alive physically, but they're still covered up in their sin. And Paul says that when, when, they, when we are unregenerate, we live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we do in our unregenerate state, the things we want to do, no one's making us do them. Sinners don't sin against their will. You realize that, right? No one made you selfish. No one made you unloving. No one made you jealous. Like sinners don't deny God because it's against their will. Sinners don't rebel against God, against their will. They do those things because they want to, by their own choice. Right? And it's the same with you. You lived in your sins. You did what you wanted to do. You gratified the desires of your own flesh. You sinned because that's what you wanted to do. And the truth is every human being left alone with their own free will will do and continue to do is they would deny God because they love their sin. 
That's why you do it. Because it's their nature. It's what they want. It's what they desire. That means that if God simply gave us all the command to obey and turn to Him in repentance and faith and did not intervene in our lives and change our hearts, even though that Christ had died, all of mankind would willfully and joyfully choose to live and walk in sin forever and walk themselves right through the gates of hell by their own free choice. Left alone, we would never, ever, under any circumstances, choose God. That is the depth of our depravity. That is the depth of the deadness of our sin. We're not floating around drowning. We're dead and completely unaware of God and His goodness. The truth is, unless God breathes new life in us, unless God changes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, unless God regenerates us, we will lay at the bottom of the ocean motionless, powerless, and unable to respond to God's call. It's not until God makes us alive that we will choose Him. And it's by the grace of God and His overwhelming love that in eternity past, for some reason, He decreed to change our hearts and save us. Sola gratia is the truth that salvation is completely and totally the supernatural, miraculous work of God alone. Think about this. Think about this. He takes hell-bound creatures who hate His guts and who love the worst forms of depravity, and by His wisdom and foreknowledge, and by His unfathomable grace, He takes them, and He removes from them their hearts of stone, and puts in them a heart of flesh, breathes new life in them, opening their eyes and their hearts to the truth of the gospel, and then He sends someone into their life to proclaim the gospel, so they can hear the gospel, right? And then with their new nature, they're finally able to hear the life-giving words of the truth, and they are finally spiritually alive enough to know, right, to know what the truth is. And now they have the ability to choose God, but also the overwhelming desire to do so. Because the sin that they once lived in, and the ones they loved, they now begin to hate. Why? Because they have a new nature. And the God that they hated before, they begin to love. Why? Because they have a new nature. And then they joyfully and freely, of their own free choice and their own free will, choose God in that moment without fail. And they repent and believe the gospel and are saved. Sola gratia is the fact that we are saved by the grace of God alone. That He alone makes us alive. He alone changes our desires. He alone gives us the ability to follow Him. But here's what it means for us as believers. Because I've heard people say, well, if God then chooses who saves, then that means you shouldn't even... No, no, that's not what that means at all. Hear me. God has ordained that salvation go out to the world by what? The preaching of the gospel, right? And that we are all, by God's command, to go out into the world and share the gospel with everyone. And if we do that, we can know that we're accomplishing what God wants to accomplish. And we can be confident that when we go proclaim the gospel, we can be confident that when we share the hope of Christ with someone, that, that, that when God has prepared their heart to receive the gospel, they will receive the gospel and believe and be saved. The gospel will have its effect, irregardless of your abilities or inabilities. You see, we can rest easy because the success of God's program, praise the Lord, does not rest on our ability to be awesome. You realize that, right? 
That God's program does not rest in your ability to know all the questions, to the answers to all the objections. The success of God's program is not depending on you to memorize every scripture the right way perfectly and have all the answers and, and always know what to say in every given moment. The success of the gospel doesn't depend on you being a polished orator and being able to then debate with, with hardened atheists. The success of the gospel depends on God. All we do is just what we were called to do. By the grace of God, He allows us to participate in this. Right? And so what are we called to do? We faithfully sow the seed. And then we love the people. All of the people. Even the worstest of people. And then we pray that God would do what He can do, which is change their hearts. And then what we do is we don't give up on them, because guess what? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know who, and we don't know when. You can preach the gospel to somebody today, and then they not receive it, and then you might think, well, obviously, then God's not going to save them. No, that's not how that works. You preach the gospel to them, and you keep preaching the gospel to them, and you keep preaching the gospel to them, because God, in His own timing, in His own wisdom, has a point in time where He's appointed for them to have their hearts open, and then when they finally hear the gospel at the right time, they will be saved. Our job is to be faithfully sowing the seed and not be worried about whether or not we are effective enough. God's word is plenty effective enough. God is powerful enough to save whoever he wants to save. We just become obedient, sowing the seed, and then praying that God does his part, changes hearts. And we love people. We let the light of Christ shine through us. Right? And then we don't ever give up on them, even to their very last dying breath. That's what we're called to. And that's the grace that we're called to. Not only are we saved by grace, but then we're sustained in our efforts for God by His grace. Because only by His grace can we even participate in this. And by His grace, can we even have the privilege of being an instrument that He uses to share the hope of Christ with someone. And if you're someone who has shared the hope of Christ with someone and you've seen them turn and repent and believe the gospel and you've seen their life change, you see the awesome privilege that God has called you to. You, there's nothing like it in the world. And brothers and sisters, this now then is what we need to do. This is the truth we need to live in. We need to stop worrying about God's sovereignty and my free will. We just need to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. Right? We need to go out there and tell them, like, you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to tell them the bad news, that you're dead in your sins and your trespasses and you can't fix it. But if you will repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. Call them. Right? That's what we are to do. If we do that, brothers and sisters, God will be glorified in your life. No matter what else the world shows us around us, you can rest assured every single night that God has been glorified. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.